Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, right at the beginning of your Bibles. And we'll be looking this morning at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. This is God's living and active word, and let's go to him now for his grace. Father, we pray that you would apply your word, apply it mightily to our hearts. Father, we know that you have given us your word in order to hear it and obey it and to believe in it so that we might believe in Christ. And Father, we pray that your spirit now would make us to do so. Encourage us in faithfulness and use your word to bring us renewed life and new life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the beginning, God. God, being who He is, has always been and was there before the beginning. The very Godness of God demands that He be this eternal being. He's atemporal, outside of time. With God, there is no succession of moments. There is no progression of time. There is only for God the eternal now. He's wholly transcendent. Transcendent over all of time. This is why we ascribe to God lordship. He is lord over history. You and I, we're all subject to history. We are enslaved within this thing called time. We have no grasp over the past. The past is completely lost to us. And we have no control over the future. The future is unknowable and uncontrollable to us. But in the mystery of who God is, the exact opposite is wonderfully and beautifully true. We are presented within the pages of Scripture with a God who is eternal. In fact, 
The Apostle Paul even states that when we look around us at the created world, at the beauty of nature, we are led through what the creation reveals about God to see his eternity. Romans chapter 1, verse 20 says that since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly seen in all that has been made. There's something about creation which when we observe it and and when we look and, and think about it, we're led to contemplate the God who created it all. The God who's over and above and before it all. And so creation, by God's design, reveals to us a God who is infinite and holds all of time and all of history simultaneously in his own eternal now. This is why when Moses, the author of Genesis, asked God what his name was, God responded with the name, I am. He is the eternally existent I am. The infinite God in whom there will never be any succession of moments. God can never say of himself, I am becoming. I think it's so fascinating to think about this truth as we come to the end of Genesis 1, this section where we see God creating man and woman, because we need to be reminded that God is creating here from an eternal perspective. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, John tells us in Revelation 13, that God had each and every one of us in mind as the object of his eternal love ever before he created the heavens and the earth. At the point of creation, God simultaneously held the end of history, the new heavens and the new earth, in his hands. So what we're doing here is not merely dealing with a neat little story of how humanity came to be. We're reading the beginning of a much grander story, which God has planned out every detail from eternity past, and where every part of creation, even us right now, is meant to reveal the grandeur and glory and majesty of this eternal God, Yahweh, I am. As Psalm 19 reminds us, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge, and their voice goes throughout all the earth, declaring the glory of God. That's fascinating. God's creation of time, day to day, reveals God's glory. So it is that on that sixth day, at the climax of God's creative purposes, we see God create what seems to be the clearest and brightest reflection of his glory in the creation of mankind. We know from the passage that there's something unique going on here, right? When God created everything else earlier in chapter 1, Each of the creation moments begins with the phrase, and God said. So you see that there in verse 3, and God said. And then again in verse 6, and God said. And then again in verse 9, 11, verse 14, verse 20, verse 24. But when we get to verse 26, we see a different introduction, don't we? There we read, then God said. We're meant to slow our reading down a bit. Something different is going on here. Secondly, whereas in every other creative act, God speaks in the third person, let there be light, or let there be an expanse, 
Now in verse 26, notice how God switches to the the first person plural and engages in what can only be described as a kind of divine deliberation. Let us make man. And as if to end this passage with an exclamation point of uniqueness, we're told that the creation of mankind was not just good, but what does verse 31 say? It was very good. The entire section is meant to stand out as a unique, separate, and different text. There's something uniquely different in Genesis 1 about the creation of man. I suppose one of the first questions we need to address, and which is probably on your mind right now, is this mysterious divine dialogue we see in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So, who is this us? What, is, what does God mean when he says, our image? Some have tried to argue that it is God having a conversation with the angels, the heavenly host who dwell with God. But I don't think this can be the case since angels are not created in God's image and therefore cannot be included within the us of God's image. A more recent argument that has gained some popularity is that God is referring to himself in the royal plural or the plural of majesty, something ancient kings and monarchs would often do when they speak. They would say we when he meant I. I'm not opposed to that interpretation. I think it fits well here since God is seen in this whole passage as a divine king. His word rules. But I think it's best to interpret this passage in the light of the whole Bible in the light of the coming of Christ, the divine Son of God. The Apostle John, when he began writing his gospel, he had Genesis 1 in mind when he wrote that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The divinely inspired Apostle sees here in Genesis chapter 1 a clear plurality within the one God. And that's not actually foreign from the text of Genesis 1. God addresses himself in this divine dialogue, but this isn't at all surprising since we know he has a spirit who is both with him and distinct from him at the same time. The reference to the spirit of God back in verse 2, do you remember that? That spirit who is hovering over the waters? That demonstrates that there was a co-participant with God in the act of creation. At the point of Genesis 1, it's clear, only God creates. And so here is God and the Spirit of God creating. So it's no surprise that the New Testament will go on to give fuller insight when it teaches the radical involvement of Christ in creating all things. Will read for us earlier from Hebrews 2 this exact point. Christ, who is the eternal Word of God, breathed out by the eternal Spirit of God, was with God in creating all that is. Here then is Genesis 1, and we see the first glimmerings of a Trinitarian revelation. The one triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, in divine dialogue with himself saying, let us make man in our image. This evening, during our evening service, we'll explore what it means for Christians to be recreated or born again into the image of Christ. The New Testament seems to teach that in Christ there is a kind of reestablishing, a a renewing of the image of God within us. And it's Christians who are by God's Spirit being more and more to reflect Jesus Christ who is the image of the invisible God. 
Paul tells us in Colossians 3.10, we are to put on the new self in Jesus Christ, being renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator. So, whatever it means to be made in the image of God, and we'll explore that more, it is at least something deeply Trinitarian, and our salvation in Christ is deeply connected to it. But here I just want us to see the Trinitarian component of what's happening in verse 26. God, in and of himself a triune being, makes mankind in his own image, and, and, and there's something about man which is meant to reflect who God is, more so than how the rest of the creation displays God's glory. If the creation displays what God is, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, then it seems here that mankind displays who God is. This in place, I want to suggest four things we see about being made in the image and likeness of God. Four things. First, there is a relational aspect to it. There's something relational to being made in the image and likeness of God. Secondly, it's continual. It's something that is never lost. Thirdly, it's polemical. The image of God in mankind was strikingly unique in Moses' day, and it is in our day as well. And lastly, the image of God is functional. The image of God in man has a functional role. So relational, continual, polemical, and functional. We've seen already... Some of the ways that the image of God is relational. We're created to reflect and represent the Trinity, a God who is in and of himself a relational being, the three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, having eternally communed with one another, enjoying each other in the glory of divine, eternal love. So Apostle John tells us, God is love. And so just consider the first thing God does here once he creates Adam and Eve. Do you see it in verse 28? He creates man, male and female, in his own image, and then then he speaks to them. It's significant, isn't it? That the first thing God does is bless man and then tells him something. He, He communicates with him. As we'll see, his communication to Adam and Eve will carry with it moral obligation. There's a relationship between God and man which has a moral significance. And this means that as God's image bearers, we can hear and receive and obey God's word. This will take on a lot more weight when we get into chapter 2. But notice here that this, this relational component of being made in the image of God is a relationship grounded in communication. God will speak with, commune with his image bearers. And thus, we are in a unique way the object of God's triune communal love. We're created to participate within that communal love of God. Isn't this what Jesus prays for in John 17, his great high priestly prayer? There Jesus prays to the Father right before his crucifixion. And he asks, he says, Father, I pray that all believers may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Of the glory that you have given me, Father, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and then, and then you in me, that they may be perfectly become one. What a profound communal prayer that Jesus is desiring here. There's something about what mankind was created to be that's deeply relational. 
and which has as its origin and as its end the deeply relational being of the Trinity. Now we add to that what seems to be here, I think, an astounding reality, that when God created mankind in his image, he did so in creating man and woman. We see this preeminently in verse 27. There we see the repeated idea that God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created him. And then he adds that qualifying clause on what that actually looks like, right? Male and female, he created them. What the text seems to be doing here is it's testifying powerfully to the unity and diversity of male and female. Just as there is in God a unity of diversity within the three persons of the one Godhead, so too in mankind we see diversity. As God is no plain kind of undifferentiated monad, this, this one being, but rather he's a living and active dynamic personal trinity, well, so too is humankind. We are made for harmonious relationships. There is a fundamental differentiation between male and, and female, and yet both are fully made in the one image of God. I think one appropriate application of this truth is simply that being gendered is a basic facet of being human. The woman, as female, reflects in her image the full glory of God in all of her femaleness. The man, as male, reflects in his image the glory of God in all his maleness. And each gender matters. But, and this is what we need to remember today, their distinction and their differentiation also matter. Male and female together, but distinct, different, both together reflecting the glory of God in his triune nature. So I think even from here in this passage, we want to, as Christians, push back and and question many of the assumptions being made today about gender fluidity or, or gender neutrality, Or even the absurd but very popular idea that gender is some kind of social construct uh, invented to protect the all-elusive patriarchy and thus oppress and belittle all women. Now, according to God's revelation, uh, the established difference between male and female is a good and God-glorifying truth. In wisdom and in love, God made us male and female. So we are in reflection of our personal God, likewise made to be relational and personal beings. The image of God in man is relational. Secondly, we need to see that this image of God, what theologians refer to as the imago Dei, is something that every human being has and is something that was never lost or forfeited after the fall. The imago Dei is continual. It's relational and it's continual. It's clear that God made Adam in his image, But one question that needs to be asked is, what happened after Adam and Eve fell into sin? Did they forfeit or or lose the image of God? Well, quite simply, the answer seems to be no. Turn over with me to Genesis chapter 5. Look at Genesis chapter 5 and verse 1. Just a page over. Genesis 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man... He made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, 
after his image and named him Seth. Here's the second place in Scripture where this concept of the image and likeness of God is brought up. And it comes about at a crucial juncture in the narrative of Genesis. Right after the fall of Adam and Eve, after Cain has killed Abel. And so the question kind of arises in the reader's mind, is that it? Has mankind completely lost the ability to reflect and image God? And what we see is no. What was destroyed in Adam's fall was, well, was his original righteousness. And we'll look at that in the coming weeks. Nevertheless, even after the corruption of mankind due to sin, man was still regarded as being in God's image. Adam had a son. And Moses, using the language of image and likeness, connects his son Seth with Adam and thus connects him back to God. In fact, this is exactly how the gospel writer Luke saw it. When Luke chapter 3, giving us the genealogy of Jesus Christ, he connects Jesus all the way back to Seth, and then he says, quote, Seth, who was the son of Adam, who was the son of God. It's a very interesting thing which Luke does here, which again gets back at this relational aspect of what it means to be made in the image of God. There seems to be a relationship between God and Adam, which was like that of a father to a son. And in one sense, all humanity is descended from God in this relationship. Does not Paul affirm in Acts 17 that all mankind is God's offspring? And so what we want to highlight here is that the image of God continues in and through all humanity. Even when sin goes completely unchecked, and it seems that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil continually, and the Lord even regrets that he has made man on earth, even then the image of God continues. Turn over to Genesis chapter 9. Look at Genesis chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. This is right after the flood where God in judgment destroys all humanity. But then he makes a covenant with Noah. The man through humanity would yet again repopulate the earth and grow to reflect God's image over all creation. He turns to Noah and he tells him, he commands him in verse 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? Because God made man in his own image. In other words, God establishes government to protect humanity from the evil of murder and violent injustice. Man's blood should not be shed in an unjust way because man is still made in the image of God. Murdering a man is attacking the image of God. Or as Jesus will apply it later in the Sermon on the Mount, hating your fellow man is hating God. Here then is the third and last instance within the Old Testament where this concept of the image of God resurfaces. And again, at another critical turning point in the account, I think in placing these texts at such key positions, it seems that Genesis is emphasizing the fundamental importance to what it means to be made in the image of God. It not only continues and is present in all humanity, but the way Genesis brings it up, we see how the Imago Dei is a fundamental component to the dignity and value of all humanity. Adam's children have God's image irreversibly stamped upon their being. And, and then their children have God's image stamped upon their very being. And thus we see that all children have stamped upon them the unique and dignified worth of being created in God's image. We'll soon see how this truth served as a polemic. But, but just consider for a moment 
how this truth pushes up against and confronts the thinking of our own day. 200 years ago, countless millions were subjected to the horrors of slavery within America because, it was argued, only certain races were imbued with the image of God. Denying the uh, uh, continuity of the Imago Dei to all humanity was used to oppress, to abuse, and to even kill men and women who were in fact made in God's image. If you can argue that somebody is less than human, then you can easily argue that it's not wrong to enslave, abuse, or even kill them. 100 years ago, countless millions of Jews were again captured, tortured, and killed. Because why? It was argued only the Aryan race maintained the full image of God. All other races had either lost or so polluted the Imago Dei that genocide was considered to be the only appropriate and final solution. And out of that very strain of thought, interestingly adopted out of a Darwinian theory, Margaret Sanger founded and opened up Planned Parenthood in order to help cleanse society from those inferior people polluting and distorting the image of God and man. And to this day, countless millions each year are killed by abortion. Why? Because they're denied the status of personhood. A child within the womb cannot be a human and therefore cannot be made in the image of God. Of course, we read in Psalm 139, Psalm 51, that even within the womb, the Lord is knitting together beautifully embodied souls, all fearfully and wonderfully made in the image and likeness of God. Friends, the point couldn't be clearer. All life is to be valued and protected. The still unborn life within a mother's womb, uh, that, that child is a person made in the image of God. The life of a man or a woman who looks and dresses and speaks differently from you. His life has value because he too is made in the image of God. James chapter 3 verse 9 reminds us that, that with our tongues, which is connected to our hearts, we all have the propensity to sinfully curse others who are different from us. We're scared of the other. But then James reminds us that we're cursing people who are made in the image and likeness of God and that these things ought not to be. The Imago Dei is an aspect of humanity that continues and is present even now in every man and in every woman. And how we treat each other and how we treat our fellow man is a reflection of how we honor or dishonor our Creator. Thirdly and quickly, this idea of creating mankind in the image of God was an immediate polemic to the other cultures and false religions of Moses' day. Think for a moment about where Moses and the Jews had just come from before God inspired Moses to write Genesis. Egypt, right? And what kind of religion would they have known in Egypt? A religion where all the gods were represented by animals. The ancient Israelite reading through Genesis 1 would not have thought about the chapter from a, from a biological point of view, but would have read Genesis 1 from a deeply theological point of view. He would have thought back to his time in Egypt and he would have remembered all the gods of Egypt. Sebek, the crocodile god. Anubis, the dog god. Terut, the hippopotamus goddess. Heket, the frog goddess. Babastes, the cat goddess. Num, the elephant god. And Apis, the god who looked like a bull. And, and, and so this portion of Genesis would have rang out as a loud and clear polemic and argument against the false gods of Egypt. It's not animals 
who most closely represent and are closest to the gods, but it's mankind who represents and is most close to God. A lot of historical and archaeological research, really good research, has been done to see that in almost all the ancient Near Eastern kingdoms, even during the time when Moses wrote Genesis, the king was almost always seen to represent the main god and was often considered to be a kind of son of God. They were described as being made in the image and likeness of that certain kingdom's god. And what was being communicated was this idea that their god was ruling and subduing in and through the might of that one king. So, for example, in Egypt, Pharaoh was seen as a descendant of Ra, the sun god. We know about King Adad Nirari in Assyria, who writes about himself that, quote, the gods gave me a divine image and appearance, fitting me to rule on behalf of the gods. Thus, there was this kind of understanding that to be made in the image of God was to be made a king for God and to rule on God's behalf. And yet here in the Genesis account, we see the startling and wonderful truth that God didn't just make one man, Adam, as a king in the image and likeness of God, though, as we'll see in a few weeks, he was indeed a king, but God actually made all mankind to be kings who would rule over the earth on his behalf. God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply, and that the multiplication of their offspring, all humanity, would also have dominion and rule over God's creation. This is now getting to our last point, but I want you to see here how polemical this was in Moses' day, and it is in ours. Hinduism, still a very popular religion, upholds certain animals preeminently, the cow as a sacred animal and and made in the image of one of their gods. Uh, It's so sacred you cannot even touch it. Oh, while countless millions of other Hindu men and women are castigated and even treated as less than human because of their social class. As Keith mentioned last week, many here in America uphold the value and dignity of a tree or an animal as being more precious than a human life. A Greenbelt's own Green Man Festival exalts the value and dignity of, quote, goddess Mother Earth and the soil and the trees as the apex of what humanity is, chanting in a kind of hymn-like fashion that we all come from the ground and will return to the ground in hopes of reincarnating as a tree here in Greenbelt. But Genesis 1 presents a radically different narrative. We see here a polemic against the narratives of other false religions, Mankind being made unique and different from the rest of creation. Made in the image and likeness of the one true God. And here we get to our last point. To be made in the image and likeness of God is to rule over creation. The Imago Dei is not only relational, it's continual, polemical. And I think most pertinent to this passage, it's functional. Look there again in verse 26 after we see God make man in his image and after his likeness. Uh, We see what that actually means in the very next sentence, right? The The very next part of verse 26. He says, Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Here God is setting up Adam as king a vice-regent and royal representative 
to now rule over everything that God has created. In fact, look how much this is emphasized in the actual text. After we get that wonderful little poem, that poetic pronouncement in verse 27, right, where we see God create man in his image, male and female, he created them. Then what do we see immediately following in verse 28? The exact same function repeated. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. It's their rule that seems to couch this idea of the image of God. This is what Will read for us early in Psalm 8. The writer of Psalm 8 seems to have the book of Genesis open in front of him, and he's reading Genesis 1, and then what does he say? How does the psalmist respond? When I look at your creation... What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and yet you've crowned him. Crowned him. He's a a king of some sort. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands and put all things under his feet. It seems then that what it means to be made in God's image is that we are made to reflect God through dominion. Notice even there the regal language of dominion and rule. That's something only kings are called to do. But what is humanity called to rule over? Not other people. Now mankind is called to rule over all the earth. We'll look at this in a little more detail in a few weeks where it seems that what Adam was meant to do was to begin working and cultivating the land he was given in Eden. Uh, This has profound effects for how we think about uh, ecology and the environment. But Adam was supposed to expand it wider and wider over all the earth until, I think as Habakkuk puts it, the knowledge of the glory of God would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We know from Genesis 2 that God puts Adam and Eve within this kind of localized garden called Eden. But notice what God says right here in verse 28 and 29 and 30. They're not just to rule and have dominion over the creatures and animals in Eden. No, he says they're to fill the earth and to rule over every living thing that moves on the earth. It seems that this dominion and this rule was to expand, making the whole earth to be a place that was just like Eden, the place where man walked with and talked with God. Adam was to cultivate and tend and take care of all the earth, naming all the animals, caring for them, and expanding this reflective glory and image of God over all creation. I think... Pastor theologian James Boyce is right when he says that at the present time, we have something seemingly very opposite from this text. A very horrible situation, he says. In our sin, man either tends to over-dominate and thus violate the creation, not taking care of it, but rather ruining and polluting and destroying it, or he tends to fall down and worship the creation not realizing that his own debasement is brought about in the process. But the Bible places mankind squarely between God and the rest of creation. He is a kind of mediator of sorts. Not only a king, but but a, a priestly mediator. He looks up in worship to God, and he looks down in care over God's creatures. And yet we live now in a world where men and women seek to confuse it all. We've exchanged the glory of God and our exalted position in reflecting him for lies, selfish desires, 
and our own exalted identity of whatever we want to make ourselves. In denying God, we've confused the goodness of how we're supposed to relate to one another. We've confused the goodness of how we're supposed to relate to God. Men abusing women. Women wanting to be men. Men wanting to be women. Men wanting to be with men. And we desire now to worship the creation rather than our creator. Ironically, what happens is that when man severs the tie that binds him to God, and he he tries to cast off God's rule and authority over him, he doesn't rise up to take God's place as he so selfishly thinks will happen. Rather, he sinks to a more bestial level. He makes himself more like an animal, and therefore less of a man. He even boasts that he comes from animals, proud descendants of mere apes. Now there's no history, there's no grand narrative of God's creative purposes, but we're all only products of blind and random chance. We're merely animals among other animals going nowhere. And what has happened is that we have more and more become less like God. We've become ungodly. Have we lost the the Imago Dei? No. We all, even the most sinful and confused among us, are still stamped with the image and likeness of God. We still reflect him but we do so now in a perverted and distorted way. As sinners, we are cracked and warped mirrors, seeking to make God look silly and absurd in all the ways that we live our lives. We mock God in our sinful confusion. As I mentioned earlier, what we've lost is our righteousness. We are all unholy and unrighteous image bearers. Look around. Read, watch the news. Do you think that the knowledge of the glory of God is filling the earth through our godly rule and dominion? No, we're we're spreading the disease of selfishness, suffering, and sin. We know, and, and I think the world around us resounds with cries that we need a Savior. We need a Savior. Let me end by simply reading what Paul reminds us in Colossians chapter 1. You can turn there and read along. Uh, with me if you like. I'm going to end here. Colossians 1, verses 13 through 23. And I want you to notice as I read uh, the close connection Paul is making between God's creation, the image of God, and the hope that we can now have in Christ our Savior. Colossians 1, 13. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the church, the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, Doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. 
if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Let's pray.